There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. Uh, I'm your host, Ryan Silverstein, and with me is my co-host... Megan Bojarski. Uh, in this episode, we will check in on an often overlooked Disney film and see how the animated strike affected the Disney studios in the short term and forever after. One note before we get too far, while we're still within the first five features of Walt Disney Studios history, this is actually the beginning of a pretty major shift for Disney. While the previous theatrical releases have had Walt's fingerprints all over them, The Reluctant Dragon, our focus today, and the films that followed it are seriously impacted by world history and the studio's economic hardships, which we'll be exploring extensively over the next several episodes. This made them pretty different stylistically, and perhaps even somewhat inauthentic in comparison to their predecessors. But that's something that we'll let you uh, decide for yourself and we'll kind of discuss throughout this episode. This project is a strange one. And this is a movie I've only ever seen. This is, I think this was the second time I've actually watched it in full. Uh, I think the previous time was whenever it came out on DVD, I like rented it from Blockbuster or a library or something and watched it. And it kind of feels like a curio more than anything else looking back. And for those of you who have watched it, uh, it is a hybrid live action. It's not even a hybrid, really, in the way that, you know, uh, Roger Rabbit or Song of the South or something is where there are animated characters interacting with uh, li- with live actors that only happens once and it's hard cuts back and back and forth because Donald is still literally on the drawing board. Um, but it's a live action film with animated segments is probably the way to say it because I I would guess I didn't really clock it exactly but I feel like it's at least 50-50 animation of some kind versus live action and maybe tilts a little bit more 60-40 uh it feels more live action to me at least when I watch it because I think especially because the animation happens later on in into the movie uh, but the the purpose of this was was twofold so most of the the narrative of the reluctant dragon is actually a, a tour of the Walt Disney Studios. Robert Benchley, who's playing himself, uh, and he was a, a a humorist back when that was a job. So he wrote newspaper columns. He was in movies. Um, he was part of the Harvard Lampoon, which obviously has a very long history in the world of comedy. Uh, and so it starts at his house, and he's in a swimming pool. And uh, his wife convinces him to take the story, The Reluctant Dragon, over to the Disney Studios and meet with Walt Disney and tell him that he should make a movie out of this uh, children's book. And so most of the narrative of this is a studio tour of the Walt Disney Studios. Uh, And so there were two kind of purposes for The Reluctant Dragon and how it came to be this thing. So one, 
there was a demand by the general public to try to better understand how cartoons were being made. Uh, I actually own this on DVD as part of the Walt Disney Treasures line, which is, I think the release is called like Inside the Disney Studio or Tour of the Disney Studio. And the Reluctant Dragon is the main part of it. But there's a few other, you know, small featurettes on there. One of them is a promotional reel that's about 10 minutes that they did for Snow White that includes a little bit of behind the scenes on how animated movies are made, which was the request of RKO in their release. They wanted to promote it, you know, and it's the first feature length, uh, at least American cartoon. And so they wanted to really put that out and the public seemed to respond well and wanted to know more about how these things that they were enjoying were being made. Uh, And then the second one was to make a relatively inexpensive uh, movie that would bring in cash to fund uh, future animated movies. So this cost about $600,000, which is almost half of what Snow White cost, uh, and obviously a lot less than what Fantasia and Pinocchio cost. Um, In these goals, I would argue it was uh, modestly successful. Uh, It wasn't huge with the public, uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later. And I think, you know, as a as a movie, it's only sort of moderately successful in actually explaining how cartoons are made. Yeah. So I think that this is kind of an interesting situation because it's kind of similar to Fantasia in the idea that there was kind of one short and then it kind of expanded and exploded into doing all of these different roles. So if we're talking about the conception of the story... The Reluctant Dragon is based on an 1898 children's story by Kenneth Graham, which was originally published as just a chapter in his book Dream Days. Uh, That being said, it's his most famous short story, so it makes sense that it's kind of in line with the projects that Disney had been looking at. However, uh, like Ryan said, you know, it's actually only the last 20 minutes of the movie being the reluctant dragon, and everything else is a little convoluted. So just for a little bit more clarity in understanding what this project was, the first 20 minutes of the film are entirely in black and white, and it is the story of getting onto set and looking around. And then the rest of it is in Technicolor, which is uh, an interesting transition we'll talk about in a little bit. Most of the film is live action, but it includes four short animated segments, uh, including Casey Jr. from Dumbo, uh, three Technicolor cartoons, Baby Weems, Goofy's How to Ride a Horse, and then The Reluctant Dragon. Uh, and as Ryan was talking about, it's, it's pretty half and half. Uh, the movie's runtime is traditionally understood as 70, 72 minutes. It kind of depends on what version you're watching. Uh, the total length of the animated parts is 40 minutes, so it ends up being just about half and half. Um, and this ended up being kind of a, a crazy project because you, as the audience, are supposed to be following along with our, our intrepid hero. Um, you're supposed to be kind of following along with Benchley as he goes through the studio and as he learns everything. Uh, but as we'll discuss in more detail later, uh, people don't necessarily like Benchley as a as a self-insert character. Uh, so there's some successes and failures in where this works as a successful series of shorts, where this works as a successful kind of 
promotion of the studio and of Walt. And, you know, I think that dives in a lot into how it was presented in its future formats. But before we go too far into that, uh, let's do kind of our classic. This is the film that talks about how it's made. So let's talk about how this one was made. Ryan, do you want to start us off here? Yeah, and, and this was something I, I found doing our re my research for Fantasia for our last episode. But the the order of operations for how these cartoons were getting made at, at this time, at the macro level, because obviously there's a bunch of, you know, back and forth and revisions and different things happening simultaneously. But the, the overall big picture was that everything started with Walt. Then things went to the story group where they were fleshed out. Storyboards were created. They settled on like, this is the movie we're going to make. Then came sound, which will, that will be important later. Uh, then, then the director was brought in to sort of manage like project manage the rest of the, the movie, which included layout, animation, background, ink and paint, and then finally camera to actually, you know, photograph everything and put it all together. And I do like that this tour visits most of those departments, at least. Um, you know, like we meet with the story department. Sound is a big deal on this. We get to see the camera. We get to go to ink and paint. We do see some, uh, some animation being done. So I do like that they are at least acknowledging all the different pieces. <laughs> um, you know, it's also notable that this is the, actually the first live action film from Disney. Um, so, you know, with it being half live action, this is the first um, movie that they made with real actors. They brought in an outside director who had experience, you know, with photographing real things as opposed to photographing drawings. Um, and there's a mix of actual Disney uh, employees um, you know, so Clarence Nash, who voices Donald, is prominently featured. Uh, Ward Kimball plays a big role. Uh, but then there's also, you know, Alan Land, uh, or sorry, Alan Ladd, Francis Gifford, uh, and others who were brought in uh, as actors to kind of flesh it out. And what's also interesting is the live action segments were also storyboarded, um, which was, as far as I can tell, and at least as far as, according to Leonard Maltin, has never really been done before for a live action movie. And uh, the director that they brought in, uh, Alfred Worker, was like, oh, this is really helpful. <laughs> I really kind of like this. And and it really sort of, you know, not that it like overnight, but it, it sort of spawned the idea of maybe we should be using storyboards to visualize live action films as well as animation. So that's kind of an interesting footnote within this whole thing. Um, of course, that being said... Sorry. Of course, with that being said, one of the kind of complicated parts here is it's being staged more or less as a documentary, that this is what it's like if you were to visit Disney, which first off, I would be concerned if it was that easy to get into Disney. You just walk up and you're like, I would like to talk to Walt Disney. I have a children's book and they just let you let you do whatever you want for the most part. A children's book that you may or may not have the rights to sell, just a children's book you like. <laughs> That's actually something that, bit of a tangent, I find that so fascinating. The research doesn't seem to know what to do with them having the rights. The only, essentially, concept that we can tell is that supposedly he and his wife came up with the idea to make it a movie. Uh, they said early on that it was their nephew's book. 
I think that just means the physical copy. I don't think that was intended to mean that they had any connection to the actual rights whatsoever. So it's, it's very much not how things actually work. And due to what we'll be discussing in a little while, Disney had to hire actors to play most of kind of the background roles here. So while we did get to see some of these big names at the studio, we also have a bunch of people pretending to be workers at Walt Disney Studios, which makes it really odd as a documentary and also kind of explains why the storyboarding worked so well. Because if this had been the real people and the real processes, they probably didn't have to script it as much as they did. But this was a remarkably fictional documentary version of, uh, of how Disney works. Yeah, I would very much call this not a documentary. Um, it, it is a fictional movie about a real place and a real process. But it is definitely not a documentary, especially because, you know, I, I don't something to for somebody to look into at some point. Uh, it would be interesting to see where we start to get actual less staged behind the scenes uh, footage that gets released but it's certainly not a documentary in the style of what we th what we think of as a documentary today even about filmmaking where it's somebody going around with the camera and talking to people and you know like I'm thinking of the uh, industrial light and magic documentary that came out on Disney plus uh, last year the year before uh, where like that is a documentary it's people telling their stories it, how, how much of it is true is you know a different a different question but this was a scripted live action film in a non-fictional setting <laughs> for me like actually seeing clarence nash and florence gill who voices clara cluck uh who is a sort of a i guess forgotten character at this point within the larger mickey mouse world uh you know, and, and Ward Kimball, like, those are kind of the highlights because I'm like, oh, I know who those people are. And, like, you know, seeing Clarence, I always like seeing voice actors do the voices. And so seeing Clarence Nash do Donald Duck on screen for a bunch is really fun. On the studio tour itself, it's the Foley scene uh, where they're doing the sound for Casey Jr. is is the easiest example to point to of like that is not how animated movies are made that's how live action movies are made where they you know they have the movie playing and they and they you know take the shoes and they run them across sand or turn this crank or you know wave a piece of uh aluminum or something to make different sounds along with the action in animation the sound is recorded first and the animation is drawn to the sound so that entire sequence in some ways, it's more impressive that those guys are doing the sounds in time with this completed animation, but it is absolutely counterfactual. That is a that is just a that is just a lie. <laughs> so my favorite part of that is, I wanted to get into Foley design, uh, and for those who don't know what we're saying, it's basically just how you make the sound effects for movies. Uh, and sometimes that's literally just you matching the beat of footsteps, and sometimes that's coconuts becoming horses and, and all of the things that we see in this scene. So that's something that I actually looked at for a career path. And I will tell you that when I was in a video production class, uh, my undergrad had a pretty good sound program, and the way that we had the intro to Foley lesson was Disney's skeleton dance, literally done exactly as the scene from The Reluctant Dragon was, uh, of 
we had the cartoon up on the screen. There was no volume. We had various instruments and people whose jobs were to make weird animal noises. And our jobs were to kind of match up with it. And I find it hilarious because that says so much about how this flawed, incorrect legacy moved on that, you know, a hundred years later, not quite, but, you know, mm-hmm. I was literally being taught Foley in the incorrect way because they lied about how they did it in this movie. I just, I find that actually really hilarious. It's, it, it's really funny. And like I said, as a scene in a movie, it's really well done. It's really cool to see all the different things they use to make all those different sounds. Uh, I really actually enjoyed seeing the um, the Sonavox machine, which is used to make uh, Casey Jr.'s voice like that. I don't even know how to describe it, but, um, and it, in the actual in in Dumbo, which we will talk about next week, it is a woman who does the voice of Casey Jr. So that part at least was accurate. It's not that woman because that was uh, an actress that they hired. That's that's Frances Gifford, um, who is not a Disney employee, and that's why she's able to bounce from department to department and from black and white into Technicolor. But um, it it was done by it was interesting to see that process even if the actual what they were saying the process was was wrong (laughs) yeah so this is a point i'm gonna uh kind of jump ahead for a minute to kind of talk about legacy with this because i think so much of it is they were painting a picture of who they were that may or may not have been accurate but as i was watching this all i could think about was charlie and the chocolate factory And I'll tell you from reading reviews online, everybody else is feeling the same exact way, especially when they had the uh, ink and paint studio and they're mixing all those colors. It absolutely feels like, you know, we're visiting the chocolate factory and seeing the secrets behind it, Uh, which is kind of hilarious because I would call this a poorly done adaptation. Uh, But the book was actually not written for another... uh, It was published uh, about 23, 24 years later. So if anything, uh, I couldn't find concrete ties, but Roald Dahl actually stole from the reluctant (laughs) dragon. But that is absolutely the narrative I see. And if you, you know, you can see it in the kind of extreme crazy ways that everything's going and how he gets mocked kind of by the workers throughout. And even especially really when he finally meets up with Walt in the end, and has to be like, okay, I stole something. Oh, whoops. It's very much in line with when Charlie comes into Willy Wonka's office and is like, I stole this. I'm sorry. I I believe in the wonder of candy making now. Uh, so I, I will say that the production, seeing the behind the scenes, is easily the best part of this movie, in my opinion. I think it is so well done, despite the fact that it is lying to you. Uh, but as a movie in its own right, I would say just watch, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or I think it was, watch the old one. I think that one technically was Willy Wonka Mm -hmm. and the Chocolate Factory. Just watch that. It's, it's basically the same thing, uh, but probably more accurate somehow. Um, but that was just what I was thinking of throughout the studio tour, that they were very much kind of going for that, like the land of wonder where we... You know, uh, again, one of the special kind of features that they did was they made a clay bust of uh, Benchley 
And they made plenty of things, but they actually had her kind of magically create that because the way they actually filmed that was they had already made it and then they had her tearing it to pieces and then they just reversed the footage, which I find amazing uh, because it, it looks like she just like has magic and can just make anything she wants. And I think that was very much the message that Disney was trying to send. It may not have been the magic fairy tale kingdom we know it as today, but they definitely wanted you to believe that it was magic. And I think they did a good job with that. Yeah, no, I find the studios who are uh, wildly entertaining. I am sort of mixed on Benchley as a host or as a <clears throat> as a audience surrogate character. But we, we can talk about that more when we get to our our, our takes on <laughs> on this whole thing. But I agree with you that the studio tour is, I, I think, really well done. I really like seeing um, the scale of the multiplane camera because I think unless you've seen it in person or in this, it's really hard to get um, that sense of scale. Uh, and so seeing how big it is and that they also have different ones that they use for, for different reasons was really cool. Um, you know, the transition to Technicolor, I mean, there's no way they would have done that without Wizard of Oz coming out a few years earlier. Okay, they were obviously playing on it. There's a man in a booth. There's specifically green colors and red colors. It was absolutely a mockery of Wizard of Oz. And you know what? I think it was actually pretty well done. Yeah, I, it's just, it's funny because when I put it on, I was like, wow, this is a really weird choice to make this black and white because I had totally forgotten that like I, I remembered the animated sequences being in color, but I was like, oh, it's really weird to shoot this thing uh, in black and white. And then obviously I'm so glad that we got to Technicolor before obviously we got to the ink and paint department because that might be my favorite segment of the entire studio tour. It's just seeing the colors in all of those jars and all of those like dispensers where like what I think of as like uh, college dining hall like cereal dispensers um and then like you know they're weighing the different pigments to like mix things in there's all i mean it's 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 just beautifully shot and the technicolor i feel like is you know turned up to like 11 because those colors pop uh off the screen absolutely yeah i i have never seen this one before i was watching for this and i you know i turned it on and i'm like okay yeah whatever it's the 40s most Films were still, you know, not in color. And I, and it was, I was like, okay, I'm going to mark that it makes it kind of boring for me, especially in that intro scene. And then once the color was there, to then be able to do some of those later sequences, you know, seeing the multiplane camera, I mean, we've literally been doing all the research for this podcast. I've talked about the multiplane camera, but being able to see the transition from the camera to how it worked and what it represented was really just fantastic to me um especially because that was something that i found so successful in pinocchio specifically um i will say with the ink and paint i kept thinking of makeup brands because there's a lot of like color tone mm. matching brands now um but what was hilarious to me is we're gonna talk in a few episodes about times that technicolor didn't work quite right and part of the thing with Technicolor was the color you painted is not the color you see on the screen. So I find it fascinating that they must have made fake colors to look like normal colors in the real world to then be fake real colors in the animation. 
Like, there's, like, 15 levels of inception on the different color breakdowns. Kind of like, uh, for, for the MCU fans, if you've seen the behind-the-scenes of the WandaVision episodes that they did in black and white and, and different tones, they literally had to paint uh, Vision blue instead of red because of how it showed up with the footage. And they have to have done that exact same thing with the ink and paint process. They had to make fake colors. And I just, I, I, I love how inaccurate it must have been to look so magical. Yeah, and I think that really underlines the whole point about this is, this is a, this is Walt pulling back the curtain, but just a little bit. Like it's, it, we're really not, we don't want to quote unquote ruin the magic. Like we'll show you a cell of Bambi, a movie that isn't coming out for a few years, but we're not going to show exactly the way it all comes together. You know, and before we get into the three animated segments, I do have to say, I really having, again, in that same sequence with the multiplane camera, having Donald Duck, you know, talk back to Benchley and being like, with Benchley being like, I don't understand how this works. And, and you know, when we, and even in the, um, I think even in the film, they, they're like, oh, you know, everyone's done it like a little flip book and it's kind of the same thing, you know, and then Donald is like yelling at him about like, this is how I walk, you know, and just that little bit of animation. And, and again, having seen Clarence Nash do Donald's voice and then seeing the drawing and then sort of seeing it come to life is like, that is a really cool way to structure uh, this tour. Absolutely. Uh, and I definitely think it's impossible for us to really speak on it, given how many years we are detached from it. And I mean, animation isn't remotely made the same way now, so it's not kind of practical anyway. But just seeing kind of how all of those elements came together, and specifically how they connected to the future projects. Uh, so many of the elements of the movie we see preparing for Dumbo. Why were they drawing so many elephants, I wonder? That movie would debut only four months later. Uh, like you said, Bambi, uh, which had been in the works from before Snow White premiered, but would be still like a year out. There was all of that, and that's kind of an easy kind of draw up. Maybe they had heard those names before. What I find amazing, and we'll talk about it in some of the future episodes, is just how far ahead they were thinking. Mm -hmm. Because when you specifically look at the 3D models, uh, you know, that's a scene to pause and, and look at all of the details of. Captain Hook is already there. Mm -hmm. Peter Pan would not be coming out for another 12 years, but Captain Hook was already fully sculpted back then. And there are plenty of other stories. Uh, spoilers for an upcoming episode. Uh, the Little Mermaid was being worked on at Disney in the 40s. Mm -hmm. May not have come out <laughs> until significantly later, but they were working on it then. So I think that, uh, ironically enough, the backdrop is probably the most realistic thing in this movie. That, you know, just the little background details, you can learn a lot about where Disney was going. Obviously, the interactions were scripted, but some of those details were real, and that is how, you know, the layout worked or, or what projects were coming up. And I think that that was kind of a cool Easter egg for us that uh, obviously they wouldn't know quite what to do with. Um, but it just kind of continues that thread of, you know, 
in the earlier movies, we would see, oh, there's other books on the shelf <laughs> that are Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. And let's just, you know, tease all of these stories we're going to work on. And, you know, with hindsight, we can go, it took them a while to finish those. But those were really, you know, there. We we could have very well had Peter Pan in the 40s if things had gone differently. Uh, so it's as as much as there is fabricated, there's a lot that's almost alternate history mm -hmm. that this was this was the Disney that they wanted everyone to believe in that was, you know, still riding the high of Snow White and that was full steam ahead. And uh, as we'll be discussing in this uh, episode and as we'll be discussing in future episodes, that is not what happened to the company, but it's certainly the image they wanted put out there in the 40s. Yeah, I mean, this really is, as, as I've said, in my view, not a documentary, but it does provide documentation of sort of this interesting transition point that's about to happen or is sort of happening in the background of this movie a little bit where <clears throat> the animator strike changes everything. And then obviously World War II is heating up and America's involvement in the war changes everything again. And so, you know, there's... There's a sense that Disney doesn't really find its footing again until the 1950s uh, when you get really post-war and, and things are kind of going back to a new normal, I would say. Um, you know, and, and just for the record, uh, Little Mermaid songwriter Alan Menken would not be born for another eight years after this was released. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if we're tracking the Little Mermaid development timeline, uh, these are two important <laughs> milestones uh on the way there but uh but okay so now we have to talk about baby weems which uh i did not remember at all from my previous viewing um it is what is called a limited animated short uh here it's used to demonstrate storyboards but it's basically voiceover done alongside static or mostly static images there's a little bit of animation here and there or there's a little bit of like quick flipping from one image to another that gives a sense of movement but it's not full animation and it's basically a comedic short about a a boss baby um who talks at two days old and is super smart and then gets sick and loses all of his uh intelligence and speech and all of his developmental weirdness and it's basically about how sad his parents are that the world has taken their baby from them because he's so special and he's conversing with albert einstein and correcting his theories and he's meeting with freud and you know and his parents are sort of like watching this all happen from a distance and then they get the happy ending because they get a a, uh, a normal baby <laughs> uh, at, at the end of this but you know, limited animation is a style of animation that I haven't really looked into too much. I think we're probably all familiar with it from like certain segments on like Sesame Street and like interstitials for various, you know, Nickelodeon Cartoon Network programming. From what I, from the little bit of research I did, this is actually considered one of the best uses of limited animation. Uh, but what struck me is that the, the concept, the way it's presented, it feels very like modern um, compared to the fairy tales and the things we've seen in Silly Symphonies. Uh, and it feels very Pixar-like to me. Um, I don't know, Megan, what were your thoughts about Baby Weems? Well, there's a lot of things that are going to complicate the legacy of Baby Weems. Uh, 
But I feel like it was very well done in kind of doing that transition. Uh, I mean, with the Reluctant Dragon, it's basically just we're watching people and then suddenly we're not. We're just watching a short. And the limited animation was such a great way, kind of similar to Donald talking back, to show kind of that in-between realm. And I think the best way I can describe it is it was giving us an exploration of the insides of these men's minds. Uh, and I think that was really effective, structurally speaking, that they were able to, you know, there's this guy who is clearly has no idea what he's doing as he's wandering through here. And there are just, you know, 50 pictures on the wall. And he doesn't know how to make those pictures into animation. And that kind of gave us that transition point where you can say, okay, here's how the artists could just make 50 pictures and have a full, complex, deep, emotional story to it. Uh, so I think structurally it really works. I really liked the play on, you know, this baby could save the world. I mean, you've got to keep in mind, this is coming out in the middle of World War <laughs> yeah. II. The U.S. wasn't in it yet, but still... Uh, this is coming out in the middle of World War II. Uh, it's just after slash in the Great Depression. And, you know, this baby is going to have a solution to all the world's problems, but we are rooting for him not to so that these two parents uh, will be able to get their son back. And so I really like how deep and interesting it is. Uh, again, I think that it suffers... And I'll talk about that later, but it suffers from the same reality of who the animators were in the 40s and what they weren't uh, thinking about and how insensitive they were in a lot of ways. Uh, but as a structural device, I think it's one of the best cases for how a drawing becomes animation. It is the, probably the best part of the movie in actually showing you know, uh, phase one to phase 100. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the story. I find it very, I like that it's weird more than I like the story itself, but, uh, and I like that it, it sort of feels un-Disney-like. Uh, like I could almost imagine a Looney Tunes version of Baby Weems that obviously has a lot more like violence and bombast to it, but but it feels a little bit closer to their sort of irony and, um, you know, playing with with those kind of conventions than I usually expect or usually associate with Disney anyway. Uh, but I agree with you. I think I think as part of the the movie, The Reluctant Dragon, it's definitely one of the highlights for sure. And it's it's very well done for what it is and very interesting. And I think I agree. Like it it reminds me of. And it sort of echoes, you know, Walt's Snow White presentation that, you know, has passed into legend. And you can sort of imagine, like, this This isn't staged as a pitch for it. It's it's really just telling the story straightforward. But you can kind of get that, get that sense of that link of this is how Disney tells stories to itself before they, you know, share them with the rest of us in that magical sense. Yeah. I will also say I... I'm a fiction writer and I am a thousand percent guilty of, hey, this is a person who has never heard my story ideas. Sit here and listen to my whole story and tell me how amazing it is because I need that to get it from, you know, 
the idea stage to actually on paper. So it's actually surprisingly accurate for like the artist's need for external validation. Uh, and then the next sort of demonstration that comes pretty quickly after this is um, How to Ride a Horse starring Goofy. Ward Kimball directed it and sort of invented a, uh, this is like the first in like a series of fairly famous goofy cartoons like there are ones that come around i think pretty often the one where he learns how to ski is a particular favorite of mine uh and it's clear that this is the first one in that like series or that concept because it's, it's a little light it doesn't have as much of the uh like the way they do them later with the narration and like you know there there's much more sort of irony and like you know step one is do this and then step two is do this and you know this is a little a little looser um but it's fun to see goofy in here because again we haven't we haven't talked about goofy at all <laughs> uh in in the course of this podcast so it's nice to get goofy and donald and and a little bit of that in here um <clears throat> and uh this was actually later i think in the 50s released as a short on its own they sort of sliced it out and and put it as its own goofy short but like i said it's fun it's not as good as the um as the how-to parodies that would come later with goofy but it, it's pretty solid yeah i so to be perfectly honest this movie has some really really good highs and then it drags and to me this is one moment where it drags that the short might and evidently was successful in its own right but within this i don't feel like it added terribly much except for having a famous face I mean, when we are seeing the, the 3D model room, you know, he says, oh, everybody's here but Mickey Mouse. And that is something that is apparent in this movie, too. I mean, you see, you know, Mickey Mouse on the patches of clothes and on the windows, but Mickey is not a character here. So I feel like to some extent, this scene was mostly just necessary for being a famous face and a character that audiences would recognize since most of the other illustrations are characters for movies that don't exist yet. So I think that was kind of just a, a way to touch in with the audience and be like, hey, remember, you like our stuff. Remember these guys? You like them, they're fun. But uh, I think coming from the future, it, it's one of the weaker aspects, I would say, to the film structurally. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I think that's actually a great point about and as an act of branding, you know, sort of tying the shorts and the features together in a way, I hadn't thought about that before, but that ma that makes total sense to me. Um, you know, and then eventually we get Walt, um, and then we get to the the title <laughs> segment for this uh, eighty minute move me, uh, the Reluctant Dragon, which. It's funny, I went actually today, because I watched The Reluctant Dragon earlier this week, and then today I watched uh, The Silly Symphony, Ferdinand the Bull, which was from uh, a few years earlier, which is based on a book that was written in uh, 1936. The short came out in 1938. The Reluctant Dragon is an older book, but a newer movie. But they basically have the same plot, where there is a ferocious animal that has this reputation for fighting and violence and this particular incarnation of that animal or creature uh, does not, not have any interest in fighting at all. Ferdinand the bull wants to smell flowers all day. The reluctant dragon would like to write poetry and drink tea. 
and have nice desserts and could, and teach birds how to play music. And and it, they are strikingly similar. Ferdinand the Bull as a Silly Symphony is about eight minutes long. This is about 20 minutes long. And I think that while a little bit simpler, I don't know that this needed to be even 20 minutes long <laughs> is basically kind of how I I felt about it. It starts really well. I love that it opens with a boy reading a book. You know, he's obsessed with knights and dragons. He's living in presumably medieval England, because I think in the book, The Reluctant Dragon, it's it's actually Sir George and the Dragon. It's a retelling of that. And here they change it to Sir Giles for reasons. Maybe they didn't want to upset the Brits as they were being bombed. I don't know. His dad is like, there's this ferocious creature coming. He's, a, he's attacking everywhere. And, and the kid's like, oh, don't worry. It's probably just a dragon. Like one of our knights will like deal with it or whatever. And so they bring out Sir Giles, who is not the kind of knight that you would expect once his armor comes off. He is a very sort of like, I would say he's coded as fancy English or like a little stuffy and a little older, almost like a Don Quixote type figure in his own way. Uh, and then the dragon, like I said, is, uh, and this has been noted w- alongside with the character of Ferdinand from that story, you know, the dragon could, could be seen as, co- as gay coded, you know, because the, the dragon's interests are, you know, he's definitely presented as a, a dandy <laughs> and there is sort of leaning into that stereotypes without ever going too far into it. It's it, but it's very like, it's very surface level like it's not even subtext it's just like very much there but they're just not taking it too far i guess is is how i would say but you know for me it looks really nice the animation has done well but again like i i do feel like it it actually drags on a little bit longer than it probably needs to yeah i feel like it you know i like a story within a story but at this point i think it's the story within the story within the story within the story and it it just I think to to some degree it kind of like the goofy sketch you can't really care at that point because we've seen all of these oohs and ahs of the studio and now we're just kind of getting a story and it doesn't necessarily speak against the story but it's it's not you know the highlight of the movie um I will say it is to me the reluctant dragon as presented here is kind of a proto princess bride okay uh and i know that's going to be kind of a weird take but it is a little boy who likes reading stories about action and adventures and fighting and is learning that there is you know a a beauty and a value to theatrics and the arts and and all of that um it's very complicated when it comes to representation because like you said it is you know gay coded And Disney has been well-known for gay-coding their villains, but neither of them are villains. I would say, honestly, it comes across as the knight and the dragon, like... And again, subtext, uh, full text, I'm going to finish... uh, We're going to come to a conclusion with my final stab, and then they run off to live in the village together as happy partners one might say to me it comes off as a gay love story and i'm all for it but uh it's complicated because on the one hand the comedy is coming from the fact that you know the knight and the dragon these two very masculine classical figures are both very feminine uh so there's there's obviously some kind of homophobia and sexism to that but it doesn't actually disagree with that 
I mean, the the villagers cheer the knight and the dragon, and they seem just as happy when he moves in with them. So it's actually a shockingly accepting story for this moment in time. Um, but I do wonder if to some extent it was meant to kind of thumb the nose at Christianity. Because it is a relatively accepting gay love story in my mind. And they took a character that is a Christian saint mm -hmm. to do this with. So there's definitely some, some complicated stuff in that adaptation. But shockingly, there is very little scholarship on this. On why they decided to, to make this a movie. Why it was kind of the, the key feature here. And why that change was made. We don't know. Nobody really talks about it. Uh, so... I don't know. I think there could have been some really interesting stuff going on if that was its own story. And there's definitely some elements that resemble The Princess Bride and Shrek and all of these movies that kind of parody the fairy tale genre. But I just think that shoved into this movie, anything kind of powerful it could have done just kind of gets deflated. <laughs> In the fact that this movie is literally the making of a movie that they did not release on its own. <laughs> like, they didn't event- well, they did eventually release this as its own short. But this wasn't, like, the making of Snow White. This was the making of a movie that, honestly, you're a little bored of the movie by the time you get to it. Which is unfortunate, because I think it could have been, surprisingly, actually, a really good- kind of story on its own if it had gotten the development of some of those earlier features yeah I, I don't think it works as the conclusion to a studio tour project um and i i agree with you i think watching it on its own you'd get a lot more out of it because you'd just be engaged and i, I think you're right like i think by the time you're you mentally get there it's not that you're ready for the movie to be over necessarily but walt doesn't do a lot in this, which I was actually surprised, <laughs> surprised about, like, he doesn't really play a big role, which I think, you know, we can talk about more later. But I think that's really interesting comparison to all the stuff that's going to come later, where Walt is very much the face of the company and doing some of the kinds of things that um, that Benchley is doing in this movie, uh, in his own Walt Disney style. But I agree with you. It, it's not that I dislike it. It just doesn't quite fit which you know is sort of the theme of the short itself uh in a way and so i think being it on its own it probably would come across as much stronger um because again this movie doesn't really have a climax there's no like there there's a there's a very thin narrative the whole way but it doesn't it doesn't build up to anything like even him finally meeting walt like it's not that benchley is like nervous about meeting like maybe he's a little bit nervous about meeting walt but he's like he just seems to be procrastinating because he keeps getting distracted mostly by by good-looking women but um he doesn't have that like oh i'm really nervous to meet walt disney you know and then he meets disney and that's sort of the like emotional climax of the of this of the studio tour part of this movie it just sort of like transitions into like all right walt's here oh you brought me this book oh well guess what we already made the movie about it so let's just watch that and there it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't really have a lot of momentum going into this and then this is kind of a in a good way i think you know a sort of slow like gently paced story 
And so that just whatever energy is left just sort of kind of dissipates over the course of it a little bit. Yeah, I think that, well, I think for one thing, they lost their moral, probably just because of everything that was happening behind the scenes, which we will be discussing. Oh boy, will we be discussing it. Uh, and, you know, this whole movie, there is a lot to talk about when it comes to gender. Man, there are beautiful women doing absolutely every role, and that was a huge point of contention in the company at the time. So I think that part of it is just that, you know, it it's a story of futility on the part of, you know, getting this book sold to Disney. But within it is supposed to be kind of this grand metaphor that I think the reluctant dragon as a story does fairly well. You know, this whole movie has been, here is how these men use their unmanly talents of drawing and comedy and weird voices to make magic that makes everybody happy, even when it's not necessarily what society thinks it wants. So I think it actually, the, the story, I can see where they were trying mm -hmm. to build up to the idea that, you know, the Walt Disney Company is the dragons and the knights that just want to make poetry and that the poets can make these grand spectacles because they know how to fit all the pieces together. But I just feel like it needed to be, you know, the short needed to be the thing that we were all waiting for. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't because we don't, you know, particularly care, like you said, to meet Walt Disney and to get to that final uh, meeting. I mean, eventually is avoiding the guy who's taking him to Walt and then is ready to leave. He doesn't, he finds Walt entirely by accident. So if, I think if Benchley, as you will likely have figured out, he is probably one of my least favorite parts of this movie. I think if he had been a better protagonist and we started as, I, look, it's a sexist trope, but if it started as the nagging wife makes him come to the studio and then as he went through things, he fell in love with animation and realized that this was what he really wanted to do. And he presents it to Walt. And then we jump cut to a year later and them watching the film. I think it would have hit home that idea of the power of the artist and how they can make even the unconventional beautiful. But because Benchley doesn't care any more at the ending than he does the beginning. In fact, he seems to care less. And they already did it without him contributing at all. You know, uh, when they do the Baby Weems section, he says, oh, you have to do all of this just to get a movie made? I think if he had been excited about that, like, oh, we get to do all this to get a movie? And we had just seen him care more as we went through it? I think they could have really driven home that, that metaphor. But I think that Benchley just is boring to follow he never actually seems to be enjoying himself except when he can use the donald duck voice to mock his wife that that's the only time he seems happy other than when he's flirting with the random women yeah no i i think that's a great read i i was gonna say you know my my sort of plus up for it would be just benchley 
meeting Walt Disney very early on and then not being in the rest of the movie and then Walt being like, oh, like, you know, in order to make this movie, we have to go to the story department. We got to go to this or whatever. But I, I like your idea even better. I mean, even if, you know, they used Benchley as like the voice of the dragon or the voice of the knight or something to to tie that together, like that would have been an improvement. To, again, to sort of give give some... Like, not stakes dramatically, but just, like, you know, a connective tissue. Yeah, I mean, I get that the original story and the animation are tied into Don Quixote and the idea that you do crazy things and it doesn't matter. And, and I get I get that element, but I don't think they stuck the landing, so it would have been better to just go with a more traditional story structure. Um, and and we, can, we can and will talk about Benchley a lot more. Uh, but just one more quick thing before we kind of move to the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Kind of a funny fun fact. This movie was initially rejected by the Hayes Code, which I find hilarious. Not because of the racism or the sexism or the implied pornography, but because in the original animation of the Reluctant Dragon short, the dragon had a belly button. And the Hayes Code just could not tolerate that, and they had to reanimate the entire final 20 minutes to get rid of the belly button on this random dragon. And I, I find that to actually be kind of driving the, the whole point home of it was all pointless. You know, we, we have this great movie about all of these cool processes, and it comes down to this one triumphant short and it got turned down because of a belly button on a mythical creature. Welcome to the to the film industry. Well, and like, welcome to America. I mean, it's just, you know, <clears throat> literally everybody from the beginning of time has had a belly button. And so like, you know, it's really, I, it, all I can do is laugh. I agree. Like, all, all I can do is laugh <laughs> because it's just so, it's so blatantly ridiculous. Um, but I, I actually did not know that. And, you know, of the sources that I've been using for this podcast, like there was very little information about this movie in general and specifically about the short. I really couldn't find much about the development. So I, I would love to learn more about a lot of these choices, um, you know, especially in the conception of the Reluctant Dragon short, um, you know, which was released in uh, June of 1941. Um and Megan, as you alluded to, Disney was uh, under siege might be the right word. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a fair description. Yeah, the the background on the Hayes Code comes from some of the many, you know, biographies and autobiographies of these key animators. But the thing that we are not talking about is the fact that this movie and the, the film tour was filmed prior to and during the Great Disney Strike, which is kind of this big shift uh, that we're going to talk so, so much about. Um, also, World War II. World War II is important to keep in mind, but it's shockingly not connected in a lot of ways here. Um, but yeah, so this is something that uh, I'm going to pass to you for some of the initial things, but the, the broad strokes of it is Almost the entire company went to war with itself, and the company lost. Um, 
kind of everybody lost. And that is going to be hugely, hugely impactful on really the next 10 to 20 years of where the studio went. Yeah, so so catching up just on the context of where Walt Disney Studio was at this point in time, uh, with all the money from Snow White, not only did they put that into Pinocchio and Fantasia, uh, but they also put it into a brand new studio lot that they built on Buena Vista Street in Burbank. They had moved from their previous uh, location on Hyperion. The company had been on Hyperion from 1926 until December of 1939. Uh, and then they moved in, from January through May of 1940. Uh, the lot itself is, I mean, a, as is seen in this movie, is beautiful. It's very modern. Uh, Walt himself was very involved in the design. They designed uh, the animation building specifically for animation. All the departments were set up for the facilities that they needed. Um, things were carpeted. It had a very sort of Frank Lloyd Wright meets the living room feel to it. Um, and, you know, so it was basically designed from the ground up for Disney and all of their needs, specifically around animation. But they also built a couple of uh, live stages as well. And uh, at this point, you know, it was kind of as the studio grew from doing shorts into features, there was sort of this like click, I guess, around Walt. Uh, and a lot of the key animators were Walt was their Peter Pan and the animators were his lost boys. And, you know, he sort of viewed himself as their sort of like cool uncle. Like they're like, oh, you know, I, I like to have fun and, you know, we work hard, but we, we play hard, you know. And then <clears throat> Roy and the, the money guys were the, you know, the, the captain hook of the, <laughs> of the situation sort of actually keeping things on the rails. Um, and that, this is a feeling that would, would start to shift over time, but I think one of the reasons it, it started to bubble up was the expansion of staff. Um, and so the more people you add, you know, the, the studio had swelled from a, a few hundred employees to almost a thousand employees uh, at, at its max in this era. And that feeling of fraternity and family within the studio started to sort of go away but at the same time, the people who had been there a long time or the people who just caught Walt's eye were very much treated as favorites by Walt uh, to the point where it affected their pay, you know, and it, Walt's belief was, you know, it's not about just, you know, tenure or status or whatever. If you do good work, you know, I'll throw you a bonus. I'll, I'll increase your salary. Doesn't if you've been here for six months, but you're you're wowing me, then I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the money. And so with Walt sort of being this one man decision making team, you know there were clear favorites among, especially among the animators, and that's where sort of this resentment starts to bubble up. Yeah. So one of one specific example that we'll get into more as kind of her era of Disney emerged. Uh, Mary Beard is a major figure, and it is great to be able to say that a woman was a major figure, because that's definitely one of the problems here. Uh, but she actually got a job at Disney because her husband was already there. She then quit right before all of this went down. Just, you know, she wasn't feeling fulfilled. Uh, she ended up going uh, on a trip that we'll talk about a little while later with Disney and came out of it as the clear favorite, and her husband got pushed back. He got less work. He got less pay. 
And that's kind of a, a really specific example of this kind of breakdown, shockingly favoring a woman in this situation, that really was driving everybody crazy. Um, so, as you said, from 1936 to 1941, the studio grew from 300 to 1,200 people. And 1,200 still seems pretty small, but it's certainly big enough that Walt didn't know everybody's names. And there were people that were just, you, hey, do this, instead of, oh, my best friend, come over, I know you make the funniest jokes. And this read, led to a lot of resentment. Uh, there were, there's a lot of things going on, but as one employee described, quote, He's a genius at using someone else's genius. Walt Disney was the figurehead, he was the man with the ideas, but when it came down to it, everybody else was doing the work. And as they saw it, he and his, you know, good old boys club were certainly getting the benefits. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the kind of broad world side of this, but one thing that we really saw was, as people started pushing for better conditions at Disney, we see how stubborn Walt really was. Up until this point, basically everybody let Walt do whatever Walt wanted to do, because it gave them results. But at this point, we had Pinocchio, which was a critical darling, but not a huge success. We had Fantasia, which was a loss. We're going into a period of more losses. And so what we start seeing is people are starting to tell Walt what to do, and he does not like to do it. And as he supposedly said in a direct quote to the company, you know how I am. If somebody tries to tell me to do something, I will do just the opposite. And if necessary, I will close down the studio. And in the long run, that's exactly what happened. He's going to take his ball and he's going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it's it's fun and it's a joke, but it's very much kind of what his personality was. And it's what he had done before. You know, if, if you really look into his biographies, he made other companies. He worked with other companies. And when people stopped giving him what he wanted, he said, that's not fair. I'm not playing with you anymore. And, you know, either quit and did his own thing or fired people. And this was a period in time where that was really, really not okay. Just to give a little bit of historical context, 1938 is when Roosevelt passes the Fair Labor Standards Act. So what this did was it outlawed child labor, or at least very severely limited it, instated a 25 cent an hour minimum wage. Oh boy, they have to pay so much. I, I know, inflation, but even so. And it established more or less the 40-hour work week. This was very much not the case at Disney. You got whatever money Walt felt like you deserved, and you worked whatever was needed to get the project done. And it was definitely raising tensions. One more kind of really critical thing that happened was 1940. Walt decided to make the company public. So... There's a lot of complications on what that means, but basically it means it had been a private company where he more or less was, you know, the, the king. He did whatever he wanted, he and Roy, uh, and he brought in money, and that was that. 1940, he makes it public to bring in outside money, uh, and that brings in shareholders. They have stock in the company, and that means that they demand 
not necessarily how things are run, but certainly transparency towards the company. Uh, so part of this, uh, they wanted to see how it worked, which is explicitly leading to doing a studio tour movie. It also revealed that Walt was taking home $2,000 a week, not including his share in the stocks. Uh, I can just tell you right now, most people were not making that much money. Uh, so that was going on. He was also hiring more women, which is generally speaking a good thing. I will always applaud him for, you know, hiring women. But the argument was that he was doing it because he could pay them less. Uh, and so he started hiring a lot of women and men felt that these women were stealing their jobs. They were just there because they didn't have to get paid. And between that, the transparency around wages and the favoritism, the company starts going majorly downhill. Yeah, the, the two things I wanted to add real quick. <clears throat> One, the 25 cent minimum wage is about a little over $5 an hour today. Uh, and Walt's $2,000 take home is about uh, $42,672 $42, a week, which is a lot, I think, <laughs> uh, you know, especially then. And the other thing I'll say is uh, up to this point, Disney actually officially had a five and a half day work week uh, that you were expected to work Monday through Friday and then at least a half day on Saturday. But often in crunch times, like trying to complete Snow White or having to redraw uh, the reluctant dragon because of their uh, because they couldn't include his belly button. You were expected to work basically around the clock. So, uh, and there there was no way to there wasn't anything protecting you from saying no. It would be you're fired. <laughs> like you know, um, <clears throat> there wasn't any sort of protection for uh, how how often you could be asked to work uh, prior to this point. Yeah. Um... So just to talk about a couple more reasons for the strike, and obviously there was a strike and we will go into how it happened and what went down, but just staying in that little advance period, because you've got to keep in mind this movie was partially made before everything fell apart, partially during and partially after, and that absolutely influences the very kind of muddled message that it's sending. Uh, but for instance, uh, there were no credits on screen at all in Fantasia for any of the artists. There was a program that was on those traveling tours, but not even today on Disney Plus, even in the program. Uh, for example, in the Nutcracker Suite section, 22 of the 53 artists that worked on it were credited. The only women that were credited in the program at all were essentially Walt's favorites, uh, Bianca, yeah. Magali, Ethel Kosar, and uh, Sylvia Harris, I believe. So again, that wonderful, beautiful uh, ink and paint section where we see all these beautiful, amazing things and all these stunning women, because again, this movie is absolutely full of women, you know, to some extent may have been accurate. They were, they did... Uh, actually have far more women working at the studio than basically any other company at the time, but they weren't getting any credit for it. Uh, they also were getting not great working conditions. Uh, so for instance, in 1940, around a third of Disney's employees were women. That was huge. Uh, again, 
I applaud him for that if it was for good reasons. That's certainly in question. Uh, but, you know, a third of the employees were women, by far more than any other major Hollywood studio. But the men certainly didn't like it. And what the men did like about it, the women didn't like about it. For instance, uh, Ryan, just to steal your note and then let you kind of continue the thought, there was a Disney memo, don't dip your pen in the company's ink and paint. Yikes. Just everything about that, yikes. The ink and paint women, as well as we talked about with Snow White. You know, one of the animators had a crush on one of the women, and so she became the evil queen. This was abs- Walt's wife worked at the company. I know I'm getting- I'm- I'm getting over- over exuberant about this. Long story short, men did not like that women were there because they were taking their jobs. Women didn't love being there because they were treated terribly and frequently sexually harassed. And it continues. Yeah, I, I was going to say, sexual harassment wasn't a term that existed at this time, but it, it probably should have been invented to talk about the environment behind the scenes at Disney. The entire campus was actually sex-segregated with a, with a big asterisk, because, again, some of Walt's favorites, there were a few women in other roles in the story group and, and elsewhere, but the vast majority, it was, you know, the animators were the men, the ink and paint department was women and they were in separate buildings on the new campus if you were an animator you were not supposed to be going over and bothering the ink and paint women but the amount of marriages that came out of the disney studio like and supposedly like every time it would happen for people that walt knew personally like he would go to their wedding and and he would like make make a joke about how like well i'm really supposed to fire one of you now and you know uh, and then everyone would laugh it off and you know it was a whole thing because again as you said like walt met lillian uh while she was an employee and so it's really hard to enforce the memo of like don't fraternize with your fellow employees when the head of the company did just that and so you know it's it's a really it's a really wild environment. Unlike, it's just really hard to uh, think about how different that is from today where, you know, the workplace is fully integrated with men and women. It may not be uh, balanced and it may not be equitable, but, you know, there are, uh, <clears throat> most companies have a lot of women that work there as well as a lot of men. And this was a, a sort of new and strange development. It was very unusual for the time and not a lot of good came from it directly. Um, you know, the, the, there was a strict dress code. The dress code for the women of the Ink and Paint Club was extremely modest to try to cut down on the harassment. But I think as we all recognize in 2023, it's not about what they're wearing. And so it's really about the environment. There Again, this whole idea of the fraternity and sort of Walt's boys it really, it, I mean, and again, a lot of these animators, you know, the ones that are striking, the ones that are, are doing the sexual harassment, a lot of them are in their mid-20s. Like, they're not, you know, established older guys. This, These are, you know, basically boys who are still, tra still trying to figure out how to grow up, um, you know, and they're in this environment where sort of creativity and free expression and pranks and uh, a lot of drinking <laughs> was, you know, accepted if not encouraged yeah so at this point i just want to really quickly uh you know we we're 
trying to cite our sources as we go as much as possible or at least share what we're looking at and just this is a quick moment to let everybody know uh the queens of animation the untold story of the women who transformed the world of disney and made cinematic history amazing book tells you a whole lot about what was going on here uh, at this point, you do see a few women in higher-up roles, but that wasn't necessarily a good thing. You know, you might have a woman in the story room, but she's being mocked all the time, or they're saying, why don't you take your shirt off so we can see how to draw those fairies? And, you know, this was a, a very inappropriate situation, and it leaned, again, into favoritism, both in a way that hurt the women and in a way that hurt the men who were not the favorites. Uh, specifically, one of the new additions to the Burbank studio was the Penthouse Club, an all-male, invitation-only club that was only available to those making more than $200 a week. So not only was this just by natural growth, Walt didn't know everyone, you know, things happen, he literally made a group for, hey, these are the men I like, that make more money than everybody else, and we're gonna have an entire other area of the building for them where they can get massages, and they can go into the sauna, and they can play sports, and, you know. So, in, in today's world, we talk about, you know, locker room culture. Walt instated locker room culture within the studio, and there was never a world where that was gonna go well. Yeah, some of this detail that I've been sending comes from the Defunctland uh, YouTube video, The Craziest Party That Walt Disney Ever Threw, uh, which ties directly it, it ties directly into the strike towards the end, but it's well worth watching because it, it calls out a specific weekend of basically a, a bacchanalia that Disney threw intentionally or unintentionally is, you know, your mileage may vary on that. Uh, and I'll put the link to that video in the show notes, assuming I've remembered to do that. But, um, you know, the that penthouse club, you know, uh, like Megan said, it had a gym, it had beds. So, you know, if you were too tired to go home after a hard day's work, uh, you could just sleep there overnight. It had a masseuse, a bar, a rooftop patio. It also had a mural of uh, Fred Moore's ladies, as they were called. Fred Moore was one of the animators who loved to draw naked women. And so it had a mural of naked women and a caricature of himself. And in the caricature, he is portrayed as a drunk, which at one point, Fred Moore was actually let go by the company because he was a non-functioning alcoholic at that point. It's this push-pull between the artists wanting to do life drawing classes and obviously all of these, you know, 20-something animators wanting to show up to draw, you know, a naked model who's who's showing off in front of them and Walt being like, well, you can't do that at somebody's house. That would be improper. So, like, we'll, we'll use the studio space for that. And it sort of ends up in this, you know, this locker room culture that is basically being endorsed by the company and and it was originally invite only and then there was enough complaints where you know oh well now it's open to everybody but they made the do the membership dues so high that most people couldn't afford it unless they were already in that exclusive group frankly you can see all of these tensions in the reluctant dragon movie we have a man walking into the studio who got there through so many sexist tropes I mean, his wife is nagging him and, 
you know, she's going to go off shopping and he has to do whatever she tells him to. And he gets there and just runs into woman after woman that he flirts with. He makes inappropriate uh, racial remarks to an Asian woman who is portrayed. There were Asian women at the company. She was not one of them. They scripted that. They deliberately added that in there. Obviously, he is supposed to be falling in love with, you know, the woman who is taking him from one section to another. He makes nearly explicit jokes that they make 3D models of characters for pornographic purposes, or at least for sexual purposes, and then steals one of the models that ties in with more of the problems with Fantasia, is a naked African, uh, cent African woman centaurette that he literally takes as a sex object. I mean, this is a movie that is all trying to show, look how many happy, pretty women work here. We love women. But simultaneously is like the most misogynistic movie we have watched thus far. Like, people say Snow White is, is a bad men, male interpretation of a woman, but my god, this movie. I mean, it, it is really caught, like you said, between that push and pull. We are a massively progressive company. We have more female workers than anyone else in the entertainment industry. But we did not provide the structure for that not to go horribly, horribly wrong. And that's, that's absolutely not everything that led to the strike, but that's enough for us to kind of start going into the actual events of the strike. So, like I said, 1938, Roosevelt passes laws. It starts really this massive, well, it doesn't start. It is a major moment in this drive for labor unions. Uh, this time period, they were labor unions for basically every field, and... The entertainment industry got its own, animation got its own, and they were coming for Disney. Um, 1940, the tensions are high in the company. 1941 is when it all explodes, which is conveniently also when this movie comes out. Uh, so there are two important speeches that Walt makes in 1941 in February uh, that kind of start this big moment of Walt fighting... The unions. And so the first one is February 10th, 1941. This was dealing with the sex slash gender problem. Uh, Walt explained that he was hiring women for three reasons. Uh, number one, because better women would be more efficient. More or less, he said, if we invest training into the ink and paint girls, like that makes them better at their low ranking jobs. Number two, war is coming. The men will likely be conscripted to war, in which case, if the company is to survive, it will need women. Uh, that was pretty prophetic. That's pretty much what happened to the whole labor industry. And three, and I, I loved the way that this was worded. Uh, I don't have the direct quote, but more or less, women might have some talents that even men don't have. And it's important for us to value the possibility that they might actually have talents that men don't. I think the unsaid piece of this that I think comes up in Queens and Animation, it's been a little while since I've read that cover to cover, 
But I feel like the implication here is that, look, if you make a man do ink and paint work, eventually he's going to want to be an animator. But with women, we don't have to worry about that. We can just keep them in the ink and paint department forever. And I've, I really do feel like there is that sort of that that sort of uh, fear that, like, you know, we can't we can't promote everybody to be an animator. So if we segregate it, we can keep these women do it in a in a separate department they could you know we might have women who are lead on ink and paint but they're never going to become animators there's no path to really do that and i think the way that this is sort of expressed sort of hints at that uh that split absolutely i a lot of what i was seeing was comparing it to the modern day uh kind of immigrants are stealing our job arguments it's a very, I mean, some of these arguments are literally word for word the same. It is, well, we don't want their common workers because, you know, they're a waste of our time, but we need people to do these lower tasks. So they say, okay, but we'll just hire them for the bit roles. Mm -hmm. And then they go, okay, well, we don't have to pay women anything because they're not really taking care of the family. They, their husbands are for that. So this is a situation where we can pay them almost no money and that helps the company thrive. Uh, and it, it's really exactly the same narratives we're seeing today. And there's this kind of combined argument where the women are saying, we don't deserve to be treated like garbage. And the men are saying, that's not fair. The garbage are taking our jobs. And it, it was absolutely explosive. Uh, so gender was a massive kind of element also super important was the literal financial side of it. As we said, I mean, one of the women who worked in the story department was earning about $20 a week. Most of the men were earning around 200 a week if they were getting up to the same tier that she was at. And again, Walt was earning 2000 a week. Uh, so at this point, Disney did acknowledge that he needed to kind of settle with them and so he gave a speech on the next day february 11th 1941 for three hours where he kind of was kind of this jekyll and hyde figure uh so we've talked a little bit and will increasingly about the persona of walt disney that walt really wanted to just be like the brother uncle grandfather throughout his life he was just the nice guy who told stories and made magic happen and that was who he wanted to be. But he also, in this period and through the rest of his life, got increasingly conservative and really liked having nice things. Uh, and so he, for essentially three hours, this was known to the company as the Law of the Jungle speech. He would flip back and forth between his persona as he tried to describe plans to save the company. So, for instance, in one breath, he said that he was going to cut his own salary by 75% because he understood that the company needed to take sacrifice and he should demonstrate that. And in the next breath, he said that everybody else should voluntarily cut their own salaries because why should they deserve anything better than he had? And he just went back and forth for literally three hours between... I understand and I hear your concerns and I care and I'm going to make it better and sit down, shut up and take what I give you. And he thought this was going to settle, settle all the problems. And what it did was essentially give them a stalemate for about a month. 
uh, as kind of the major key players and figures got together. And then everything completely fell apart from there. Yeah, there were a bunch of different people within the ranks. Uh, the, the main person who gets credit for sort of starting the snowball of the strike, I think, is uh, Art Babbitt, who was one of the animators, who was allegedly the highest paid animator on the payroll. And he was one of Walt's favorites, but also someone who could actually argue with Walt and get away with it. And so whether he out of guilt for other people not making as much as he was or speaking up because he felt he could when others couldn't, uh, he sort of took on the the lead of the like pro, like let's unionize, uh, let's get everybody's wages to where they should be. Um, he was sort of the, the rabble rouser and the thorn in the side of Walt when it came to all of these things. Herb Searle was the head of the Conference of Studio Unions, so obviously very involved in the labor uh, the labor conditions all, all around in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. Uh, and then you're going to have to tell me a little bit about uh, Willie Bioff. Yeah, so we have Art uh, Babbitt and Herb Searle on the pro-union side. Uh, at first, Disney and his lawyer were kind of the, the other side. Uh, but they hired uh, Willie Bioff, who was a former friend and worker of Al Capone, whose job, who was hired by Disney, and his job was literally make the pro-union employees' lives hell uh, with pretty explicit threats of violence. Uh, if you look into the history of unions in the U.S., there's a lot of violence for what we are generally told is essentially economic contract negotiations, strikers were being threatened with physical violence, and he was kind of Disney's big swing to, you know, prove that this was, that he was going to win out. Disney brought in literally a gangster and more or less told his employees, if you keep causing trouble, I know someone who can put that down. And more or less, he successfully kept the divide going until Willie Bioff made amends with some of his friends on the other side and just left Disney to not have an enforcer anymore. Uh, so he was kind of the muscle behind Disney saying, no, I'm not going to give you what you want. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Disney's lawyer, uh, Gunther Lessing, was basically the fixer at the company. So, you know, for those who have seen the Coen brothers, Hail Caesar, uh, he's he's the Josh Brolin where he's just going in and trying to make problems go away for for Walt and Roy. I read a few different things about him. A lot of sources conflict. One of them specifically said he's either the most overstated or most overlooked uh, person in in this whole affair. That some people try to lay all the blame at his feet, and others don't give him enough credit. But I think the the two key pieces here are. One, uh, he he may have actually been the person to sort of whisper in Walt's ear that, you know, all, all of these pro-union strikers were communists uh, and, and couldn't be trusted. And, and I think Walt's, Walt's uh, absolute hatred of communists may ultimately come from his own conservative nature and his own worldview but putting that label on it see some people give Gunther Lessing credit for that uh 
Lessing also may have had, and this may be something that, you know, Willie Bioff may have actually done, but supposedly Lessing was responsible for planting a gun on Art Babbitt and informing the police so that Art Babbitt would get arrested um, and then was fired for getting arrested, basically. And so there's a lot of... <laughs> and again, those that's just one example of a few different kinds of stories. They're hard to verify, but... I think that's a good example of the kind of things that were at stake in this. Yeah, so at that point, Disney's side was literally, I mean, endangering people's lives and livelihoods. He wanted to make this problem go away, and he had learned that the people who were most successful at making unions go away were lawyers and gangsters who made them go away. All throughout this time period, Art and Herb uh, were really essentially threatening, if you don't give us what we want, we will strike. And that message was going from at least February, uh, if not earlier. Uh, Herb Sorrell had actually successfully unionized multiple other studios, and other studio owners had sicked him on Disney saying, you know, fine, take us out, whatever. Take down the big guy, because he's why we have to do it. Because Disney was kind of running the, wor the world of animation at this point, and they wanted him taken down. And all it took was one spark. The spark came on May 20th, 1941. Disney fired 20 union employees. Uh, he... Each of them essentially got a message saying, Walt would like to see you. Uh, and from reports, again, there are multiple different ver versions. He either brought them in individually or all in a group and said, get out. I want nothing to do with you anymore. You will get no credit. You will get no money. You're gone. Within about a week, some sources say May 29th, some say a little bit earlier, the strike begins. Disney made one big move, and as it turned out, it was not beneficial to him whatsoever. Uh, the strike began, and genuinely most of the company was involved. Uh, many of the female uh, employees didn't take part in the strike because they couldn't. Uh, they were on very tiny wages, and specifically those that didn't have husbands or those who had children didn't have the luxury to go on strike. Uh, that put them in a terrible position because Walt was certainly not fighting for them and the union heads said that only those who were documented as striking would get any benefits. So specifically women and the poorer and uh, particularly immigrants, especially those who were disrespected by the public in general, uh, were in a very dangerous spot. They could not afford to not be earning wages but if they stayed, the union was ready to essentially take them down with the, uh, with the company. So Walt did the, the thing that all, all good heads of companies should do. Uh, he decided that this was too much. He didn't want to deal with it. And he was going to South America. You know, as you do. Uh, there, there is more complexity to that. We will talk about it more as it pertains to the... Uh, start of the U.S.'s involvement in World War II, but more or less he realized that the company was not a safe place to be for him in that moment, and so he was getting out. 
So he, he just decided to, to go. He took, by and large, his favorites, uh, the others who were caught in the crossfire, uh, and they went to South America. They, they toured the continent. They were working on projects. Uh, they were basically it. Uh, pretty much everybody else uh, either was on strike or August 15th, 1941, the studio shut down. So even the loyal employees who had, and I don't say loyal as like morality, just the ones who hadn't gone on strike, even those lost all of their income. And so at that point, essentially everyone who was not in South America with Disney was in danger. They didn't know if they would have jobs ever again. They didn't know if the unions were going to win out. They didn't know if Disney was going to want them back. Uh, the whole world was chaos, and we have our Happy Dandy studio tour coming out right about then. Um, the, the full shutdown was between August and September, but the strike began in late May. Uh, the Reluctant Dragon came out June 20th. It was chaos. Absolute chaos behind the scenes. Uh, and the movie did get caught up in that, as we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, whole world was going crazy. Uh, we don't entirely know what happened from there. Uh, according to several of the legends, uh, Sorrel essentially went to Bank of America, who was the main funder of Disney, uh, and said, look, Disney is nothing without his staff. His passion projects have been failing for years now. So what are you going to do about it? And they bent to the pressure, they agreed with Sorrel, and more or less told Disney he would not be getting more money unless he made changes. So, September 12, 1941, they reach a settlement. Most of the staff saw doubles in their wages. There was a really in-depth uh, process invented to make sure that pretty much everyone got screen credits, or at least got some form of acknowledgement. The workers who were fired specifically in May, were rehired, but that didn't work well. Partially because Disney held grudges, partially because the company was not doing well. That was very swiftly followed with layoffs of almost the entire company. The settlement agreed that the layouts had to be evenly distributed, half from the striking employees, half from the non-striking employees, but even those who had went on strike and were kept were essentially demoted as much as Disney could. And at the end of the day, only 288 artists remained after the end of the strike uh, to work on the few projects that Disney still had going. Yeah, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, Walt didn't, he held grudges. He didn't forget, he didn't forgive. The consensus among the animators especially seems to be like it changed him from the sort of Peter Pan figure to someone with a harder edge. You know, he was less apt to, you know, join the join the pranking and the partying and, and all that kind of stuff. And it really cemented him as <clears throat> less of an of, of a fun uncle and more of a father figure who is complaining about these kids are they're not getting enough work done and you know it really it really changed his whole outlook and really changed that the the tone of uh the company and the company culture and it you know this uh, some of it feels inevitable in terms of 
you know, the, the economics, which were partially out of Disney's control, you know, Pinocchio and Fantasia both might have made more money if the war hadn't broken out in Europe and they had been able to get a full release over there. But, um, you know, some of it is certainly Walt's management style, I think, is a huge factor here. Uh, and in, in terms of creating grievances in the first place. Uh, and those two forces just came to a head in the strike and really, you know, it, it left a mark on the company and it really, we're going to see more movies like The Reluctant Dragon that are made up of different components stitched together um, and less of the, you know, Snow White and Pinocchio movies that are, you know, full full length feature animated films. And even the ones that we are going to get they don't quite have the same level of artistry behind them, I would argue, as uh, those first three films. Absolutely. I mean, you lose, in many cases, Walt's persona. Uh, his magic touch is only on a couple movies after this point. For the most part, he became the dictator. He became the head of the company who didn't get to play around and make his ideas into magic. Uh, and the company was no longer a family. It was no longer a place of relatively free expression. It was a hierarchy. It had to be slightly fairer by the conditions that were put on him. But more or less, it was a completely different company. And taking us out of our little history break and back into The Reluctant Dragon, this movie was the last thing on anyone's mind. I mean, Disney put it out to improve his own reputation. They put it out to improve the company's reputation. But really, this movie, there's a reason that it's not talked about much. And part of it is because it was, you know, maybe not the best thing they had done. Part of it was because the company didn't really care. Uh, as I said, the film was released in the middle of the Disney animator strike. And that meant that at its premiere, there were people striking and protesting against the movie. Uh, they were having signs uh, that attacked Disney for his business practices, for the pay, recognition, favoritism. Uh, fairly famously, there were groups of uh, protesters that put on dragon costumes that said the reluctant Disney. Uh, he became the villain and I think, arguably, he never really lost it after that point. Uh, I think he backed away from the public in a lot of ways. He tried to wait it out and see if he could kind of win the people over later. But in this point, we definitely see, I mean, Walt is barely in this movie. Even when he's in it, I mean, he's not as, you know, strict and rigid as the tour guide who frankly, kind of gives off, like, Hitler youth vibes to me. Um, so he's not that, but he's not the fun, like, oh, hey, come in, we love interruptions, come participate. He is, let's see this movie, let's make money off of it, and leave me alone. And that is definitely going to be kind of an impact on how contemporaries thought of this movie and really how the company functioned for the next couple of decades. Yeah, and we'll definitely be talking about Walt sort of reinventing himself when it come when we get closer to, you know, the creation of Disneyland and television, and and there's sort of a a third Walt 
or at least a another chapter, another persona of Walt that sort of develops as he moves into more of a grandfatherly uh, era, at least publicly facing, you know, and the the critical reviews of the movie itself strike aside were definitely mixed. There were a bunch of people that said like, why should, you know, moviegoers pay money to go and watch ads for Disney? <laughs> like, you know, there were people complaining about that in 1941, which I thought was very apt and, and interesting. And there's, there's always complaints about that throughout the rest of Disney's entire history as a studio. This seems to be where it starts. And then Photoplay Magazine did praise it, saying it was one of the cleverest ideas to pop into that fertile mind of Walt Disney and results in the, this rare combination of a cook's tour of the Disney studio, a behind-the-scenes glimpse of Mickey Mousedom, and two of Disney's latest cartoon features, cleverly thought out and executed. So, like, there were people that enjoyed it, but there definitely was, you know, a lot of criticisms around the strike itself uh, and, and Disney's involvement, uh, personal involvement with it, and then also the idea that, like, it's just kind of an ad for the studio. So, you know, like, what are people really getting out of it compared to Snow White and Pinocchio? Yeah, so it had, at best, mixed uh, reception at its own time. In many ways, it was then forgotten about. I mean, when we're talking about the beginning of Disney, Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, all of that's important. We talk about Dumbo and Bambi still, which are going to be the next two movies. No one talks about this movie. Uh, there have been talks about a live, uh, a live action adaptation, uh, specifically of the short, not of all of the, the tours and the walkthroughs. There are obviously still, you know, the making behind kind of clips. But the legacy is, is really kind of fractured. So we see a few specific moments and stories that kind of took on a life of their own, kind of similarly to Sorcerer Mickey and Chernabog in Fantasia. Uh, for instance, they created the Mickey Avenue crossed with Dopey Drive sign just for the movie. Uh, they intended to take it down after they finished filming. It's actually still there. It's probably a different one, but uh, it's still there. Uh, there have been replicas made in several of the parks because that ended up being kind of uh, an idea of the best that Disney had to offer, especially with everything else going on. Uh, there was actually a comic book adaptation of the complete film, uh, which included the various shorts, uh, which was in four color number 13, published by Dell Comics. And then the reluctant dragon and Sir Giles actually make cameos in, in 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And the Reluctant Dragon has brief cameos in Disney's House of Mouse. Uh, so some of these little bitty things did kind of pop out later, but the film itself doesn't have too much of its own reputation. Yeah, and even growing up on Disney, like I said, I've only seen this once once before, both basically as, as an adult. I was looking up and trying to figure out. It must have been the uh, DVD release that happened, I think, in... 2007 i must have gotten it from like netflix or something uh you know the netflix discs in the mail version of netflix um back in the day and i didn't know it existed for most of my life you know and i was raised on all the vhs tapes you know i had seen even relatively lesser known disney animated features like the rescuers and things uh, and this was just not one that i ever knew about 
um, you know, I do actually have just because I was so charmed that it existed. Uh, they put out for the uh, in 2021 for the 90th anniversary. I have a Christmas ornament uh, of the dragon that that Disney put out. And I was like, oh, good. There's something that represents <laughs> this weird movie that nobody knows about. Um, and so it, it's it's nice that they at least show up in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a movie I definitely want to cover on this podcast, even if it technically doesn't count. I can't remember if it's on our long list or not, but um, I think it's going to be worth talking about for tying into all these other things that we've talked about. And, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, more of these things should, should come back. But uh, it's interesting that this is sort of our first, you know, forgotten uh, Disney film that we're covering. Yeah, and I think one of the other interesting things, which we discussed earlier, is that, you know, this also tells us kind of the legacies of some of these other movies. Um, So as you had put in some of your notes here, and as we said earlier, in the Marquette sequence, we see designs for Peter Pan that are shockingly similar to what we ended up getting. Uh, We saw Lady and the Tramp, uh, which was originally just going to be called Lady. Uh, We see and have evidence of basically every other... They had the Snow Queen, just Mm -hmm. for the record. They were working on the Snow Queen back then. For those of you who don't know, that's Frozen. Terrible adaptation of the actual story, but they were working on it in the 40s. So kind of the irony is this forgotten film tells us about all of the not forgotten films these story ideas that they really rushed to put together after Snow White was successful and then just weren't able to because of all of the various things going on behind the scenes. Um, The other thing that we do definitely need to acknowledge is that there is a disclaimer at the beginning of the film on Disney Plus for negative depictions and stereotypes, uh, same as Fantasia. There are reasons for it. Uh, As we've discussed, there is a lot of racism in this movie. Uh, It actually did not get a disclaimer when Disney Plus was first put out. That's actually a pretty recent addition. But the way that they deal with Lotus in the art classroom, for the record, she was not a real Disney employee, but there were Asians who worked at Disney, both women and men. Uh, There is the centaurette that Benchley takes, uh, that is a naked, very over-sexualized uh, black woman with a zebra body, which again goes back into, I mean, she looks slightly more human than some of what we saw in Fantasia, but why are we sexualizing all of the black characters? Why can't they be horses like the other centaurettes who are deemed as beautiful? Benchley literally talks about it as a sex object. Uh, Within the Baby Weems cartoon, uh, they talk about, you know, Baby Weems going around the world and the world mourning him when he's sick. And they show in Indigenous Chief, they show a couple different depictions of what we can assume are probably supposed to be Africans, uh, a few uh, Asian figures that are wildly stereotypical. Mm -hmm. Just... You know, it's this fun cartoon about a baby who can solve all the world's problems. And then let's show 15 different versions of white people that all look pretty, you know, 
normal human all of that and then literally inhuman figures for other races there's a lot of problems mm -hmm. like we said rampant sexism throughout this uh the potentially uh gay coded or queer coded dragon it depends on whether you are looking at it as positive or negative and that's a debate that is being had this is a very complicated movie the worst of disney was put on this perhaps in part because the influences who would have said that it was a bad idea weren't there were striking at the time and the people who remained are the ones who thought this was funny but you know there's there's a lot of history here there's a lot of really interesting artistic craft but frankly part of why it's not remembered is because it has things that were wildly inappropriate in its own time and that are still very inappropriate now and it's just not something that people want to go back to that often yeah i was i was very surprised i mean i was less shocked by some of the problematic stuff just given the unskippable disclaimer uh, since I did watch the Disney Plus version of this, since it's in HD, eventually he's making like just a lot of sexual comments and references to things. I was like, this is weird. Like, it's just, it feels, there, there are parts of this that just feel off or awkward to me because, you know, it's so different from the, I don't want to say like overly sanitized, but the way that the Disney company has prevented, presented itself for the last you know, 60 years, let's say, uh, is much more cleaned up and polished. Whereas this is a little, I don't know, like there, there's jokes here that you're not going to, we're not going to get, I mean, I assume we're not going to get in like the live action Disney stuff in the 50s and 60s around just like Benchley's comments about, you know, not, not telling a woman that she looks beautiful in Technicolor, but just like, you know, the way that he stumbles into that life drawing class and the way that, like, you know, they have the the guy running the class is talking about, oh, you have to make sure you capture, like, these elegant curves and whatever. And then, you know, the joke is that, like, oh, it's an elephant, but you think he's describing a beautiful woman. And, like, that's fine. Like, that's relatively, like, good-natured humor, but it was still... But combined with Benchley's personality and the way he acts the rest of the movie where any... Any, any person that walks by in a skirt and his eyes are immediately just following them, that gives it, like, a worse look. You know what I mean? Like, that like that first thing was like, oh, that's an interesting thing I wasn't expecting. And then as it went on, I was like, oh, no, this is just, this is just going to be full of this stuff the, the whole way through. And it, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I'm sure that to some extent our, our listeners are, are getting tired of me saying it. But we have what are actually potentially really interesting stories. I don't think it would have taken that much editing to make this a fairly good movie because it's literally Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, you know, but it just, it's so unnecessary. You know, I, there are a million issues with not representing women and people of color but why did you invent an Asian woman just to be racist towards her? There was literally no reason for that. Either have her there to actually be a human character, 
or don't have her there, but they just kept inserting all of these things that didn't need to be there. And all I can think is that they had half of it done, the strikes hit, and this was all they could think to fill the runtime to get it to theatrical length. That's genuinely the only explanation I can come up for, because it's so unnecessary. It, it's not just bad or bad in hindsight, there's no reason for it to be there. Right. It's not intrinsic to any of the stories that they're telling, you know, and, <clears throat> you know, I think the, I think the baby weems example is, is also a really good one because like, as we'll see a few decades on with Mary Blair and her designs for it's a small world, there's a way to do that sort of around the world story of showing here's people from different cultures and not make it, a offensive stereotype it's still a little reductive for sure but it's but the way that this is done specifically makes it feel even even worse than what i would think of as sort of like average 1940s stereotyping now what i will say and this is not in any way condoning it is that we do have a very sanitized view of the u.s in 1940s uh keep in mind Hitler didn't come up with it on his own. They borrowed from American eugenics books. Uh, we were absolutely a divided, horribly racist, horribly sexist country. That was all here. We have then, we have then edited it out of our history so that we were the hero and they were the evil bad guys. That was here. I'm not going to say that this was completely out of place in the 1940s. But it certainly wasn't appropriate then. It's very much not appropriate now. Uh, and that's just... And it didn't need to be there. I, I... It, it ruins whatever redeeming factors the, the movie has for me, which is very unfortunate. And I, I wish that they were able to find a way to do it better in the future. Yeah, and uh, I, I do want to just note on a... a less 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 offensive note but still for the point of accuracy everything that they say about elephants in this movie is absolutely wrong they are highly intelligent animals <laughs> and just like making them sound really dumb was like wait i i don't i didn't do any research as to whether like the scholarship on elephants has changed maybe it has but we definitely know now that they are highly intelligent creatures that almost have their own language and remember things very well and all that kind of stuff um, but yeah, I mean, I think, like I said at, at, at the beginning, this basically exists as a curio piece at this point. And I think, you know, if you're planning to follow us on this journey on the podcast, it's on Disney Plus. I would recommend you watch it, um, knowing all these things. But it's not something that I'm going to show someone who isn't interested in the history of Disney or the history of animation or film. It's not something I would I would recommend to like my friends with kids be like, oh, yeah, like this is a, a movie they haven't. They might not have seen like throw, you know throw it on. It's it's not going to be one of those. But I think if you're if you understand the context and you are following along with us, it's worth it's it's worth the eighty minutes. But it's not one that I'm ever going to be regularly going back to. That's for sure. Yeah, I for one find it wonderful that part of your notes were about how inaccurate the elephant notes were, and I am absolutely looking forward to our next episode on Dumbo because I definitely want to know how accurate or inaccurate their elephant research is. 
I will say they were probably calling elephants dumb because the character is named Dumbo. But maybe they're just horribly wrong and, and cruel towards uh, elephants as much as they were to other cultures. Uh, I, I definitely think there's a, a layer for that. Um, we've been going for a while at this point. We've taken you through the, the good and the bad, the messy, the historical, the fictional. Uh, so, Ryan, tell me, is there anything else you really want to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet? No, I think we, I think we, we, uh, we hit all the, all the notes on this one. Awesome. I, I will say the one other thing that I was going to say earlier is I will miss uh, kind of the meta elements that Disney was starting to introduce in this era. Uh, so for instance, Mickey, uh, you know, coming out and shaking the hands of the composer in Fantasia, specifically Donald talking back. I feel like that was a really interesting play that is, I mean, the nineties and the, you know, 2020s are very into the meta of everything. I, I will miss that, uh, because that does fade away as, Disney loses its identity uh, in these coming movies. But uh, I think by and large... It, it'll come back in a few times in the 50s, I think. Um, but I'm, I'm, looking forward, I'm looking forward to your reactions to some of them. I'm looking forward to it. I think that there will be some good... I think that, you know, we have found gems in all of these movies. I still am probably never going to watch this particular one again. Uh, but I think that there's, you know, there's value in talking about the good and the bad and especially value in acknowledging the bad here. Uh, and that's something that we will definitely continue to do our best with in the future episodes, uh, bringing in the history and acknowledging the things that have changed and the things that are inappropriate. Leading out to this episode, uh, thank you all for listening to us talk about this almost uh forgotten film for so long uh next time on dream with mind and heart we're gonna see an elephant fly and as we all know that's completely accurate and disney knows everything about elephants it's true this is the only time they've ever been inaccurate about elephants yeah the the flying all real if you haven't seen an elephant fly yet they just didn't like you enough mm -hmm. uh but we'll talk about that more next time in the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at DreamMindHeart and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks for joining us.